such an awesome and, and wonderful and mighty God this morning, and we come to your word and we recognize that we don't just hold a book in our hands, Lord. We hold the living, breathing, active word of God, and that you have something to say to us this morning. And um, Father, the gospel this morning we see is confrontational. It demands a response, and uh, I pray our hearts would respond, that we would not be lukewarm, we would not be indifferent, but that um, we would be resolute and resolved to be worshipers and uh, to have surrendered lives that are living sacrifices for you. So work, Lord, through the preaching of your word this morning. Help me uh, get out of the way, Lord, and help us to seek your kingdom first and be about your business. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if somebody asked you why Jesus came into the world, I'm going to guess that your first answer to them, like somebody who randomly walks up to you on the street and says, listen, I uh, heard through hearsay you're a Christian. Why did Jesus come into the world? I'm going to guess your, your first response is not, uh, well, he came to cast fire on the earth, okay? Probably not your first response. And um, your second response probably wouldn't be, he came to bring division, and yet, this is the sort of language we see coming from Jesus this morning. Uh, this is not an easy passage in Luke 12, 49 through 59. Uh, it is a passage that draws a line in the sand. It puts you on one side of the fence or the other. It is a, a passage that shows us what it looks like to be in Christ or to be outside of Christ. Uh, we are still in the midst of a chunk of teaching that started at the beginning of chapter 12. It stretches all the way to chapter 13, verse 9. This is one big long sermon from Jesus. We are getting closer to the cross at this point. Uh, and so as you get closer to the cross, you see the message of Christ becoming that much more urgent. Uh, he is urging people to make a decision, to respond to him uh, and uh, he is urging people to turn away from their sin and to seek the kingdom first as we just prayed. Uh, this urgent teaching this morning is meant to shatter hard hearts, and it is meant to move in different hearts, and it is meant to call uh, hearts to uh, an increased intimacy with Christ if they are already following him. And in the times we live in, in which it is becoming increasingly unique to be a devoted Christian in our culture, uh, this sort of teaching is incredibly relevant. So let me read here, uh, starting in chapter 12, verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny." 
Jesus' words in Luke 12, verse 49, are surprising, to say the least. Uh, You might even go as far as to say they are shocking. And if they don't do it for you, scroll down to verse 51 when he says, He did not come to bring peace, but he came to bring division. And uh, those are equally surprising. If you're a believer here this morning and you go, Well, I, I don't really feel like this is my experience with Jesus. I I feel like he has brought peace. You know, what is this business about fire? And what is this business about division? My testimony is a testimony of peace. Uh, What I would say to you is that's a really fair reaction. Let's just think about a few things we see in the Gospels that might cause you to be a little confused about Jesus' words here. In Luke 2, verses 13 and 14, when the angels announce the birth of Christ, what do they say? They say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So his, his birth announcement was literally an announcement of peace. In John 14, verse 27, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so for the believer, the reason that our hearts are not uh, anxious and troubled and afraid is because of the peace that Christ is, has left with us. Uh, in John 20, uh, verse 21, he says, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 10, Peter opens his mouth and says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is Uh, right is acceptable to him as for the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ he is Lord of all or how about the other reasons we're given for why Jesus came that are 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 not about casting fire bringing division in John 10 10 Jesus says that he came uh, that we may have life and have it abundantly Right? The enemy, the thief, the devil comes only to kill and to steal and to destroy, but Jesus, on the other hand, comes to bring abundant life. In Mark 10.45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then as he's talking to Pilate in John 18, Pilate asked him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And then Paul, as he writes to Timothy, says that it's a, it's a trustworthy saying, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners. So what we have are a host of instances where Jesus himself is telling us or someone like Peter is telling us that in Jesus' first coming, he is uh, coming with peace. And then we get these other mission statements from Jesus where he says he came to give abundant life and to serve and to seek and save the lost and to bear witness to the truth. He came to save sinners. So why then is Jesus saying that he came to divide and he came to cast fire on the earth? Well, Both things are true at the same time. And what Jesus is doing this morning is he is showing us a really vivid picture of what it means to be in Christ or what it means to be outside of Christ. 
what it means to be under the new covenant of Christ or what it means to be outside of the new covenant of Christ. If you are in Christ, that is because God has brought a spiritual awakening to your heart. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He has opened up your eyes to the reality of who He is. He has opened your eyes up to understand that God is good and God is holy. He's also opened up your eyes to understand who you are, that apart from God you are a sinner, that you have broken the laws of God and you are deserving of God's punishment. And he has opened your eyes to the gospel, the fact that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live the perfect life that you failed to live, that Jesus died as a substitute in your place, that he rose again to defeat sin and to defeat death on your behalf. And if you're a believer, you have responded by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, you have responded by turning away from your sin, and you have placed your trust in Christ. And this morning, he's given you forgiveness, and he's given you eternal life. And with that forgiveness, and with that eternal life, and with your saving faith comes the divine peace that only knowing God through Christ can provide. So if you're saying, my experience with Jesus is that he has come to bring peace, I would say to you, absolutely, that is your experience, because you are in Christ. For those in Christ, Christ has come to bring peace. But there is a whole world out there filled with billions of lost people. And there is a separation of those who have been found by God and follow Christ and those who are lost. The Jewish people who lived in the time that Jesus walked on the earth had this assumption that when the Messiah came... He would overthrow all foreign power and that he would restore the throne of David and that he would sit on it and he would usher in this unprecedented era of peace. By the way, they weren't wrong about that. They just misunderstood the timing. They thought that's what he was going to do in his first coming, but that's actually what he's going to do in his second coming. In his second coming, he will dethrone every throne. He will usher in an era of unprecedented peace for the people of God. But in his first coming, while he brings peace to those under the new covenant, he still brings division to the world. Division because his message requires a decision. Division because you follow him or you don't follow him. There is nothing in the middle with Jesus. So the division that he brings falls down that line. You are surrendered to him or you are not. You follow him or you don't. And he illustrates this by showing how the decision to follow him will even divide the most basic unit of human community, which is the nuclear family. Look at verses 52 and 53 here. For from now on in one house there will be five divided. Three against two and two against three. Man, this hits close to home for me because... That's, that's what we got in our house, all right? That's my math. We got five in our house. It's me and, and Katie, and then we got uh, Beckett and Everett and Millie. Listen, right now, my three children, they have not responded to the Lord, okay? That's something that Katie and I pray for. We pray for their salvation on uh, a regular basis. We're sharing the gospel with them on a regular basis. They have not responded to the Lord in faith yet. So even though it's not hostile... Okay, things are divided two against three and three against two in our house. And this is what happens. 
Even son and father and daughter and mother and in-laws will be divided. The love of Christ will run so deep for those who follow him that they are even willing to walk away from their family. And on the other hand, the offense of Christ, the offense of the gospel will run so deep that people will even reject their own family in order to oppose him. This is reminiscent of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where he says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Paul's saying the ministry of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, it is the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved. I've never had anybody walk up and start sharing the gospel with me on the street. I would love for that to happen, right? That's a good sign as a Christian if just some other Christian walks up and starts sharing the gospel with you. Um, I'm going to tell you, I love the gospel so much I wouldn't even stop them. I wouldn't want to stop them and go, I'm a Christian, I don't need to hear that. I would want to stand there and say, let's hear it. Let's hear the gospel. Like, um, when, when I'm here on a Sunday and I'm not preaching, and Pastor David's preaching, and he just starts going into the gospel, he starts sharing the gospel on a Sunday morning, I'm all in. I, I love to hear it. I'm not, I don't want to sit there and go, oh, David, here we go again with the gospel. I mean, we, we've heard it. I mean, come on, man, we get the story. Right? I just basically went over the gospel a couple of minutes ago when I talked about how we have peace in Christ. Right? I hope that you didn't think, oh, here we go again with the gospel. When I hear the story of, of God and man and Christ and our response, when I hear that gospel story, I've got that, like the hymn says, right? I, I, I've heard an old, old story. I love the old, old story. So if somebody just walked with me on the street and started sharing the gospel with me, I'd be like, all right, let's hear the gospel. And then afterwards, I would break the news to them that I already know Jesus, but I'm thankful that they shared it. People who don't know Jesus tend to have the opposite response. The gospel is offensive to them. It is the fragrance of death to those who are dying in their sin. That's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And even households will be divided along these lines. How the gospel is received will divide households. Um, think about everything going on in Afghanistan right now, right? Um, and as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, what's, what happens if somebody in Afghanistan does respond to Jesus right now? Like, what if they see what's going on with the Taliban and they say, man, I don't want any of this. Like, if, if this is my religion, I'm out. I'm out. And then they hear about the gospel of Christ, and they turn from their sin, and they repent, and they follow Jesus. What happens to them? So I did some, some research, and according to the organization Advancing Native Missions, the convert, if they're in a very militant Muslim family, would be locked in a room for three days, given a chance to rethink this decision. If they will not recant their faith in Christ, they are killed. Unless they escape, and in that case, they'll be hunted by their own family for years. If a father comes to Christ, his children would now be considered fatherless because they no longer have a Muslim father. The children would be given to another family member or, in some extreme cases, could also be killed along with the dad. In less militant families, the converts can be taken to the local imam and there they may be beaten by their own family or committed to a mental institution because in turning away from Allah and turning to Christ, they will be seen as being mentally deluded 
or they're simply just exiled from their home and exiled from their community. You know, there are reports, uh, I was reading Heart Cry Missions uh, was saying this, that there are reports coming out of Afghanistan right now that since the Taliban retook power, the underground church has, gro- has grown sevenfold. Isn't that amazing? That it has grown seven times the size that it was. By the way, this is what happens throughout 2,000 years of church history. You think the enemies of Christ would figure it out, but they haven't, right? Because um, the so-called wisdom of Satan is totally confounded by the wisdom and power of Christ. But whenever the church is persecuted, the church grows. This is what happens. Whenever the church is persecuted, the church grows. So how many are on the run from their own families because they have followed Christ? How many would um, certainly be able to relate to the verse from Martin Luther's song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. The gospel unifies the church. The gospel grows the church, but it divides the world. So what is so divisive about it? Well, go back up to verses 49 and 50. Jesus says he came to cast fire on the earth. What is this fire? Why does Jesus wish that it was already kindled? Now, if you go into the Old Testament and and you go into the prophets uh, there uh, and, and the scriptures in general, fire was symbolic of the judgment of God throughout the entire Old Testament. There's too many to pick from this morning to read, so I'm just going to list the books. In Deuteronomy, in 2 Samuel, in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Lamentations, in Ezekiel, in Amos, and in Nahum, God's judgment is talked about in terms of fire, Okay? And in the case of the Psalms and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel and Amos, it's talked about multiple times in terms of fire. And so following the course of the scriptures and the prophets that came before him, when John the Baptist hits the scene in Luke 3, here's what he says. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then in Luke 3, verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So Jesus will cast fire on the earth, and what he's talking about there is the judgment of God. When is that going to happen? Well, it hasn't happened yet when he's talking. Clearly, he's talking about a future event. And it seems like it can't happen yet. He wishes that that it would. He longs for things to be made right. He longs for the justice of God. But before it happens, it seems like what what he's talking about in verse 50 has to occur. I have a uh, baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. When he's talking about his baptism here that needs to occur, he's not talking about his physical baptism in the Jordan because that's already happened at this point. And also that would not be causing him distress. The baptism he's talking about is the cross. 
He's talking about what he's going to undergo when he dies on that cross at Calvary. Much like the entire world was baptized beneath the judgment of God in the days of Noah, much like Jonah was baptized in the sea for his rebellion, Jesus will be baptized into the judgment for sin that you and I should have received, but he's going to get it when he dies in our place and he is our sacrifice. That's the baptism he's talking about. He will be baptized into the judgment that you and I should suffer for, for eternity, for our sin. In Luke 9, verse 51, he turns his face toward Jerusalem. He is, he is going um, full speed toward the cross from that point on. The cross is coming. The cross is approaching. Like we said, his message is getting more urgent. And the distress that Jesus feels over this task, it is building. And it will reach a fever pitch in Gethsemane when blood drops leak from his brow and he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus has come to this earth to die. And in his death, he will absorb every ounce of wrath that God has for the sins of his people. And so here's the deal. Your sins are either dealt with in verse 49 or they're dealt with in verse 50. Do you see that? Either he comes back and he judges you in your sin. And you will perish in that judgment. Make no mistake. You cannot stand. Right? When we see that earlier when we prayed Psalm 1, the wicked cannot stand. And you are guilty before the law of God. Right? Just ask yourself, have you ever told a lie? That's just one of God's laws and you didn't get past that one. You already have failed the test. You're already guilty before God. Your guilt must be paid for and either you pay for it yourself when he returns and he casts fire on the earth, or he pays for it for you in his baptism into the judgment of God on your behalf. Which one is it going to be? It's one or the other. This is why the gospel is so divisive. You either take God seriously and sin seriously and you repent now, or you harden your heart and you challenge God. You act as if he will never hold sinners accountable. He will never make things right. He will never bring justice against sin. You say, well, why would somebody challenge God like that? You'd have to be insane. The man who ultimately led me to Christ, Clayton King, he always says, don't try to box with God. Your arms are too short. Okay? You, you don't try to fight with God. You don't try to challenge God. You have to be nuts to do that. So why would somebody do that? Because they love their sin. That's why. They are suppressing the truth so they can continue on in their unrighteousness. It is their love for sin that leads them to reject God's Messiah. And this is why so many passionately erupt with anger at the gospel of Christ. It threatens their flesh. It threatens the sin that they treasure. That sin could go one of two ways. It could be the sin of of. Um, breaking the laws of God and being rebellious, or it could be the sin on the other side where they have created their own system of morality. We talked about Islam before. Their own system of morality where they can do a bunch of works and they can get themselves to heaven on the basis of their works. And so the gospel threatens both of those things. On one hand, the gospel says you'll never be good enough, so stop trying to play that game of morality. Repent now and trust in the only plan of salvation. And then the gospel also speaks to rebellion and says... 
you're not good enough, stop what you're doing, it's brokenness, there's no hope in these things that you think are going to bring you hope, repent and put your faith in Christ. It confronts both of those things. And it beckons us to ask ourselves the question, do I love my sin or do I love the Messiah? Is my sin dealt with in the first coming of Christ when he died on the cross for me? Or is it going to be dealt with in the second coming of Christ when his judgment comes down on the world and people are literally running into the caves and saying, fall on me, rather than stand before God and face the judgment? And families divide over this, and friendships divide over this, and even entire communities divide over this. And this is what the gospel does. I know that a lot of you might have this, this desire for everyone to sit around a campfire and just love each other. <laughs> kumbaya, my Lord, kumbaya. You know what I mean? I get it. And so when we start talking about Christ dividing, you go, oh, I just don't like this part. I don't like this corner of the scriptures. But understand, this is a theme throughout the entire Bible. Like in, in, in right after the fall, there's division, right? There's Cain and there's Abel. And you fast forward to Genesis 6. There's Noah who's inside the ark, and there are those who are outside the ark, everybody else, right? You keep going throughout the history of God's people. There are the circumcised and there are the uncircumcised. There's always been a line in the sand. Belief and unbelief, obedience and rebellion, covenant and condemnation, the gospel divides. And so the time to repent is not tomorrow. The time is today. The time to choose is not a week from now or a month from now or a year from now. The time is now. And so Jesus here, he illustrates this in two ways. The first has to do with weather. In verses 54 through 56, you see Jesus talking about how the people listening to him knew how to interpret the weather. They knew when it was going to rain. When a wind came off the Mediterranean to the west, it brought moisture. And when it hit the hills of Palestine, it turned to rain. So when the wind came and they would see the clouds coming off the Mediterranean, they knew, oh, here comes a rainstorm. It's happening. They knew when it was going to be hot. When the wind came from the south, it brought that dry desert air, that hot desert air. When they felt that south wind blowing, they're like, it's going to be a scorcher today. Get your work done in the morning, right? Get inside in the afternoon. It's going to be a hot one. So they could interpret the weather, but you know what they missed? Something a whole lot more important than whether or not it was going to be wet or dry. They missed the fact that the Son of God was standing right in front of them. They understood the weather, but they looked at the miracles this man had performed, and they heard his teaching, and yet their hearts could not detect the reality of what was happening before their eyes. And Jesus looks at them, and he calls them hypocrites. Why? Because they're Jewish, and they considered themselves to be a light to the pagans. They considered Israel to be a light to the Gentile nations. But their lack of ability to discern exposed them as the ones who were in darkness and it exposed their own foolishness. They had the law, but they missed the point of the law. They had the scriptures, but they missed the point of the scriptures. They had the prophecies, but they missed the point of the prophecies. The fulfiller of the law, the fulfiller of the scriptures, the fulfiller of the prophecies, he's speaking to them, he's standing in front of them, and they didn't listen. And not only did they fail to discern who he was, they failed to discern how dangerous it was to reject him. 
They picked up on the weather forecast, they reacted accordingly, but they were blind to the fact that the one who created the weather was in the flesh in front of them. And they needed to repent unless they wanted to receive the fire that he would ultimately bring down upon the earth. The second illustration that urged them to make a choice had to do with an example of of settling with an accuser. We see this in verses 57 to 59. Here's the situation. If you had an accuser, that accuser would bring you before the magistrate in a legal matter. If the magistrate saw enough evidence to proceed with the case, it would go before a judge. If a judge found the accused guilty, they would go to prison. I, got my, I see Lewis Murray's here. I got my lawyer man here this morning. It's good to have you in town, Lewis. So this is resonating with Lewis right now, okay? What would you do if you were accused and you knew you were guilty? you try to settle out of court. It's the same thing people do now, right? You try to settle out of court. You would try to make things right on the way to the magistrate so it never even gets before a judge. So this is Jesus' point. He's saying, if you do this in legal proceedings with humans, how much more should you urgently make things right with God? You, you can't wait until you died and, and, and you're standing in God's courtroom. It's going to be too late. You're going to be found guilty. You'll be thrown into the prison of eternal judgment for your sin. You won't be able to get out because you can never pay God back for all the sin you've committed. Breaking the eternal law of an eternal God demands eternal punishment. So you need to repent now. Be reconciled to God now. And here's the great thing. If you settle out of court, right, you've got to pay out of pocket for that settlement. But in the gospel, Jesus paid out of his pocket with the, the, his, his life blood so that your debt would be removed. He's already paid the price. You just need to respond in faith. He says in verse 59, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Jesus already paid the very last penny for your sins. Don't ignore and reject his gift. Here's how John Calvin put it. He says, By his obedience, he has wiped off our transgressions. By his sacrifice, appeased the divine anger. By his blood, washed away our sins. By his cross, borne our curse. And by his death, made satisfaction for us. We have our songwriting team. After this sermon, we're going to sing the song, uh, We the Workmanship, that they wrote. Maybe y'all could write a song off that Calvin quote. It's pretty good. Not to give you ideas, but... What Jesus is saying here is seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Some of you have so much in your life that is straight, right? You, you have your 401k, your retirement set up. You've provided the best you can for your kids. You've been putting away for college. You pay the bills. You try to take time to make sure your physical health is intact, your mental health is intact. You take a me day, you know what I mean? You got your gym membership. You exercise, you run. In other words, you discern the weather and you settle your accounts. But you still haven't laid down your life at Jesus' feet and said, this belongs to you. You still haven't turned away from your sin. There's a line drawn in the sand and you have not let goods and kindred go to follow Christ. And here is Jesus this morning saying, discern who I am. 
you can discern that you need to save now because maybe Social Security won't even be there for you by the time you're old enough to get it. You can discern that it's good for you to have a gym membership to keep your body healthy. You can discern that you can't eat Burger King every day. Right? You can discern that it's good for you to save. You can discern that it's good for you to put something away for your kids. But what about me? Settle your account with me. And so what are you going to do? He deals with your sin now and gives you peace, or he deals with it later and you receive death. Because the wages of sin is death. Seek the Lord while he may be found. If you are here with us today and you don't know the Lord Jesus, you can email us or you can text us at this email address, connect at seafordbaptist.com. So you can get your, your, your phone and, you know, if you've got an iPhone, you hit that Messages app, right? And just where you would normally put a phone number, just write connect at seafordbaptist.com. Type that in there and just send us a text to say, I want to know more about following Jesus. I'm ready to lay my life down. I want to know Jesus. If you're watching at home and you want to know um, this awesome Lord that we have worshipped, our wonderful, merciful Savior, then just send um, a text or an email to connect at seafordbaptist.com. Pastor David and Pastor, uh, Pastor David and Pastor Michael. Yes, me. Uh, we're both going to be around after the service. We would love to speak with you about this issue. We would love to talk to you about how to know Christ, but discern who he is and settle your accounts with him today. Do not wait. Let's pray. Father, you've not left us guessing about what we are to do. If our eyes and our hearts have been opened to the reality that you are holy and we are not, that we are distant and, and um, disconnected from who you are, and our eyes have been opened to the reality that your son is the only answer, that's great. There's one more step. We've got to respond. We've got to open up the gift. We can't leave the gift under the tree. I pray we would open it up this morning. I pray we would repent of our sin and put our trust in you this morning. Father, maybe you have um, children in, in our congregation this morning and um, they want to make sure that they are fellowshipping and, and yoking together with others who have seen the line in the sand and have settled their accounts and have repented of their sin and they have um, drawn, drawn close to the Lord while he is near. And they want to join our church. They, they want to go shoulder to shoulder with other brothers and sisters and bear up the burden of being the workmanship of Christ. If that's the case, Lord, um, I pray you would lead them to respond. They can send the uh, a text or an email to that same email, Lord, and respond. Whatever you're calling us to do, whatever you're calling us to forsake, Lord, I pray that we would for the sake of, of um, knowing you and serving you. And I pray that our sins would be dealt with in your first coming at the cross, that we would not challenge you and try to wait until we stand before you and it's too late. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.